Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in the beginning of Parshat Matot, and the beginning of Parshat Matot deals with vows. So it deals with uh, what we call a neder, a vow. And vows were taken very seriously uh, in the ancient Near East. Um, we've talked before a lot, actually, about blessings and curses. You know, that in the ancient world, speaking words with intention, once you speak words out loud, it gives them potency in the world that you can't take back. So once you unleash a blessing or you unleash a curse, you can't undo it. So if you'll recall... Jacob gives Esav, uh, gives Esav's blessing to Yaakov because Yaakov dresses up as Esav. Yaakov, if you believe this version, is blind and cannot tell that it's not his son Esav and gives the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob instead of Esau. Esau comes in and is horribly upset, as you can imagine, that his brother has stolen his blessing. And he says, Father, Bless me too. And Yaakov says, there's nothing I can do. Like it's, it's done. It's gone. It's gone. I've given it away. I, I gave your brother the blessing. There's no way to take it back. All he can do is give a mitigating blessing now, right? I'll bless you too with this, this, and this, but it's not going to be that you're going to rule over your brother. He already gave that bracha and he can't take it back. You can't take back curses either. So um, they have a potency, they have a force, they, they unleash a certain set of, if you think about, um, I like to think of it as an alarm, like when you, when you wire a house or uh, think about your James Bond movies, right, where, where he has those, his, those glasses, those night vision glasses he puts on and he can see all the red rays of light that are set up, right, and, and the jewel thief has to go between them right? To steal the crown. Okay. COVID people is taking its toll. I'm, I'll be honest. All right. So, um, so if you imagine I, what I imagine is when, when we talk about the ancient world and we talk about a curse or a blessing being given, you're triggering all those red lines of right. That now it's out there and, and somebody's going to trip it right by having children or by getting married or by turning 50 or by whatever it is that triggers the blessing or the curse, there's nothing you can do. The alarm has been set. Once you break that beam, it it is what it is. So it was the same thing with vows and promises that once you said, I swear, I vow that I am not going to eat sugar in the coming year that is now something that's put in place in the universe. You, you, you are stuck with that because you have made a vow. Once you vow, it's out there. And our, and our tradition takes that very, very seriously. So the question is, is there any way to undo it? And so we're going to look at a, a text from the Mishnah that builds on this week's Parsha that builds on our section that we're going to read to say, maybe there is a way to undo it. Here we are at Matot, Parshat Matot. So, So Moshe speaks to the head of the Israelite tribes saying, this is what Yudhei Vavhei has commanded. If a person makes a vow to Yudhei Vavhei or takes an oath, imposing an obligation on himself, he shall not break his pledge. He must carry out all that has crossed his lips. I'm going to stay with the masculine language here because it's only for men. This is, these laws are only for men. And we're going to see why. All right. So he shall not break his pledge. He must carry out all that has crossed his lips. So from the time of the Bible, it's understood you cannot renege on a vow. You have to, if you say it out loud, you have to fulfill it. The Isha right? And a woman, so I wouldn't say and, I would say this vav is disjunctive, but if a woman makes a vow before yud heh vav or assumes an obligation, right? And isor, uh, something she's not going to do, something she's going to refrain from, 
while still in her father's household by reason of her youth, and her father learns of her vow or her self-imposed obligation and offers no objection, all her vows shall stand and every self-imposed obligation shall stand. So if she's in her father's house because she's a na'ara, she's a youth, right? She's still ne'ureha, she's in her na'ara time, being a youth, so she's a minor. Then if her father finds out about what she's sworn and doesn't object, her vow stands. But if her father restrains her on the day he finds out, none of her vows or self-imposed obligations shall stand. And Yudhe will forgive her since her father restrained her. If she should marry while her vow or the commitment to which she bound herself is still in force and her husband learns of it and offers no objection on the day he finds out, her vows shall stand and her self-imposed obligations shall stand. But if her husband restrains her on the day that he learns of it, he thereby annuls her vow, which was in force, or the commitment to which she bound herself, and Yudhe will forgive her. Meaning, forgive her for breaking her word, because her husband has annulled it. The vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, however, whatever she has imposed on herself, shall be binding upon her. So too, if while in her husband's household she makes a vow or imposes an obligation on herself by oath, and her husband learns of it, yet offers no objection, thus failing to restrain her, all her vows shall stand and all her self-imposed obligations shall stand. But if her husband does annul them on the day he finds out, then nothing that has crossed her lips shall stand, whether vows or self-imposed obligations. Her husband has annulled them and Yudhe will forgive her. Every vow and every sworn obligation of self-denial may be upheld by her husband or annulled by her husband. If her husband offers no objection from that day to the next, he has upheld all the vows or obligations she has assumed. He has upheld them by offering no objection on the day he found out. But if he annuls them, after the day he finds out, he shall bear her guilt. So he, he can't wait and then annul them and she does it and she gets punished. He'll, he'll bear the responsibility because he didn't do it that day. Those are the laws that Yudhe enjoined upon Moses between a man and his wife and is between a father and his daughter while in her father's household by reason of her youth. So we have a couple of categories that we're dealing with here, right? We're dealing with a few categories. We're dealing with the category of a minor female living in her father's house because that's where a minor female would have lived um, until she was married. So if she gives a vow or makes a, a, a swearing of I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z for the next six months, it's, it's, it stands unless her father learns about it and annuls it. If she's now under the authority of a husband, he has the same ability to annul the vow and or the, or the restriction she's placed on herself uh, and he has to do it, though, the day he finds out about it, right? He has, to, he has to do it that day. If he doesn't do it from within 24 hours of finding out about it, then her vow stands. The restriction she's placed on herself stands. Okay. So why, why in the ancient world do you think they would have cared about annulling her vow if she's under a man's control, because a divorcee and a widow, whatever they say stands, right? So obviously women have the ability to swear. They have the ability to say, I, I vow that I'm going to refrain from eating fatty foods for the next six months. And it stands. So it's not about her ability to make a vow on her own. It's not about her, right? Her, um, her agency, she's able to do that. And it stands, it has legal power still, or moral, you know, religious power. Um, so why, why make it possible for the husband or father to annul her vows? 
<clears throat> my understanding is that she can make a vow as long as it doesn't affect the household. So, for example, if she says, I'm going to say my prayers with more kavanah, well, that's fine. But if she says, I'm going to pray two hours in the morning, in the afternoon and evening, that affects the household. And that wouldn't most likely be allowed. In fact, not even most likely, let's face it, not allowed. So that's, right. that's my take on it. Yeah. Right. So, so one, one reason males were given the authority to annul her vows is because it could negatively impact the males. Right? Like, so if the husband or the father don't like what she's sworn because it's going to impact them in a way that they don't like, they have, or or that they feel is going to affect, right, the quality of her participation in family life, then they can annul that vow. Yes. So that's exact, so that's exactly, that's exactly right. So that's exactly where the rabbis go. That her vow, the rabbis want to amend this by saying, as long as her vow doesn't impact the family, her vow stands. But who gets to decide that? Oh yeah, the men. (laughs) Right, the men get to decide whether or not it impacts um, the family in a way that's negative. Jody, you want to say something? There are a lot of references to men restraining the women. What is? What do you think that means? It it just means restraining her from fulfilling her vow. Okay. Oh, okay. That's what it means here. Amy, I think to some extent this is to protect the woman because she was under the control of the husband or the father. And if she made a vow, let's say that she was going to eat sugar every day, the husband could prevent her from doing that. So uh, if he annuls the vow, then it releases her from that obligation because she couldn't have fulfilled it anyway because he was going to prevent her. So I'm not... Right, but I think that's if he annuls it, but if he restrains her so she's not able to fulfill her vow... No, restraints here means legally. Okay. It's just legally. He Restraining means he says no. Okay. He has restrained her by saying no from fulfilling her vow. So I'm confused. So let's say she says, I don't want to, I'm not going to eat sugar, right? For the next six months. How are you saying that this is helpful that the husband can annul that? No, what I'm saying, if, if, I don't know that that's a good example. What I'm saying is if the husband is in a position to prevent her from fulfilling her vow because he has control over her, then then otherwise what would happen is she would make a vow and be punished for it, not because it was her fault, but because her husband prevented her. So what you're saying is this is making it clear that if he, if he, if he stops her from fulfilling her word, it's on him. You're saying that Sarah's making it legally clear. It's on him. She's not blamed. Right. Because he, because he had the woman uh, ostensibly in terms of her husband, and her and her minor uh, a youth, she you know to some extent he controlled what happened to her. If she vowed, I'm never going to walk into the living room, he had the ability to tell her she had to walk into the living room. So uh, it just seems to me there's a little piece of that of protection for her. Okay, so Bird is seeing the aspect of since he has control anyway, she could be put in a position where she swears something. Her husband says, absolutely not. I'll beat you within an inch of your life if you try to do that. And then she has to break her vow. And now she's in trouble with God and her husband. Um, she has to listen to her husband. And so now she betrays God and she breaks her word vis-a-vis yud heh And what I hear Bert saying is, so this gives her the protection of, since her husband and father can tell her what to do anyway, at least it makes it very clear that she's not in trouble with Yudhei Vavhei. She's going to be forgiven Amy. For, for breaking her word. Okay. Amy. So that's one way, right? That's, that's one end to focus on is Torah's protecting her from having committed a sin, if you will. Um, the, other, the other end of the poll, of course, is that 
her, her word has no standing if her husband or father want to annul it, right? She doesn't get to decide what happens in her world if they decide that that's going to impact the family in a negative way, right? So we, we just have both of those realities going on at the same time. All right, did I hear somebody mm-hmm. who said they wanted to speak? Bob? Yeah, Bob Edinger. Yeah, um, I think we're trivializing these vows by saying she shouldn't eat sugar, she shouldn't walk into the living room. Um, what I think the concern is here is she shouldn't vow that she's going to love another. Uh, and she can't she, do that anyway. Pardon? She can't do that. That's not allowed. You can't vow something that's not allowed. Oh, okay. But she might swear, I'm not, I'm not going to luxuriate in the bath. I'm not going to luxuriate by taking a bath for three weeks. If the husband doesn't like that because she's going to stink, he can annul the vow, say the rabbis, right? Because it, it directly impacts him and his quality of the marriage. So if she says, you know, so, but you can't, you can't say I'm going to love somebody else because in Torah that love is about action and that would mean she's committing adultery. You, you can't, you, she can't vow something she's not allowed to do. But I, but I hear what you say. In general, these vows are not trivial. They're, they're real things about what you swear you're going to do or not do. And usually they're, they're done for a reason, right? That you, you don't just willy-nilly make a vow. It usually was like, if you think about Hannah, our foremother Hannah, she vowed that if God gave her a child and it was a male, she would dedicate him to the temple. So that's what she had to do. When she had her son... Samuel, she had to bring him to Ellie the priest and say, I dedicate my son to the priest, to the temple. Right? Because that was a vow she made. Right. And that was pretty serious. So the, these are not small. They tended not to be trivial things, but but I guess they could be. Carol wanted to say something? Okay. So the men get away with everything. Okay, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean get away with everything? Well, they have control over women. Okay. But he's not allowed. There's lots of things they're not allowed to do. They don't get away with everything. Okay. But they do have control over the women. Of course they do. Yes. Why? Because it's ancient Israel. It's the ancient (laughs) Near East. That's how it was. What do you mean why? Because they're bigger and stronger and they can decide that that's what's happening. And that's what they did. That's what patriarchy does. Right? So the ancient world, women were under the control of men. Period. Glad I didn't live there. <laughs> I know. We all are. But there you go. All right. Ancient Israel's not unique in this sense. All right. David, yeah. so you wanted to say something? Yeah. Um, Amy, I, I, I suppose a more cynical view of this would be a recognition that this was written by men on behalf of men and that the exceptions that you gave about a divorced woman or a widow where her vows stand there are no men there. So that, the, in a, that sense, um, I guess I agree sort of with Carol. It's sort of a shame that it works that way, but that's how it works. This that's how it works. A man-written document and a man-interpreted document. Yes, exactly. So written by men, for men. Yes, absolutely. Um, what's interesting is that she does have the authority to swear and to make a vow, and it holds. Um, right. In some places, women weren't given that authority. Right. You know, they, their vows just didn't mean anything. Doesn't it not hold if the man, the husband uh, negates the vow on the day that he learns of the vow? Right. It has to do with that day or else her but, vow stands. Right. But it's but it's a conditional uh, standing because it's subject to the husband's veto. Yes, her vows are conditional. So, so one modern commentator said, so either she has to say the vow quietly so he doesn't hear it, <laughs> yeah, or, right, or she risks him overruling it. So, either she has to be untrue to herself and silence herself so it will stand, or if she wants to put it out in the world and say, I have agency then she risks it being annulled. Right. Right. But so, okay. So what I want to introduce here is the idea that about, so I want to shift from the male female aspect. Um, So Anna is very helpfully asking about what about the me too movement? Yes. Me too. Anna did not exist in biblical Israel. 
unfortunately, right? Um, it took a while, like millennia. Uh, so we are going to move from the gender aspect of this now to this idea that a vow can be annulled, right? So, you know, a, a blessing, a curse, it goes out. There's no way to deal with that. There's nothing you can do with that. So Lisa asks, does she have to declare her vows? We're not told. We're not told. So, so then the question, so that's why the modern commentator said, well, you know, she says it to herself or whispers it and he can't hear it. He can't annul it. But that means she, she has to hide, you know, and so like kind of, you know, what, what, what does that mean? And is that what we're going to do, right? You know, or, or are we going to risk he's going to overrule it? All right. One could presume if she does it and he overrules it, then she can say it quietly where he can't hear it. <laughs> and then it stands, right? But, but Torah doesn't talk about that. So, so we have to infer, you know, from that. Um, but I want to but, but go with this idea now of the fact that her vow can be annulled. And again, I don't want to focus on the gender aspect of that. I want to focus instead on um, something else. <laughs> Um, on the fact that it can be annulled. So this here's the Torah text that we just read. All right. <clears throat> the enormous importance of the vow and its serious consequences are reflected in the fact that a whole tractate of the Talmud, that you can tell I'm kind of on a kick right now of walking y'all through biblical text, through the Talmud, right, and Mishnah, to kind of how it evolves to become what it becomes. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of on a, I'm doing just there these I days. I love it. <laughs> Yay, Pam. Because um, sometimes we have this big jump, right? We, you know, we go from the Bible to what we do now or what they did in the medieval period. And it's like, wait a minute, how, how did that happen? So I'm going to walk you through just a tiny little bit of it because it, it's very meaningful for us today. The enormous importance um, is reflected in the fact that a whole tractate of the Talmud consisting of 11 chapters in the Mishnah and 91 folios in the Gemara. Remember, Mishnah is the early law codified in the year 200 of the Common Era. The Gemara are the rabbinic arguments on the Mishnah. Together, the Mishnah and the Gemara make the Talmud. So we have 11 chapters of Mishnah, 11 chapters of Jewish law dedicated to vows, and 91 folios of Gemara, of rabbinic arguing about those 11 chapters of Mishnah, right? So that makes the tractate called Nidarim. The only vows that are not included in Nidarim are the Nazarite vows, and there's a whole separate tractate devoted to that. The biblical laws of vowing are to be found in Numbers 31 through 16. We just read it. No explicit provision is made there for absolution from vows called in Hebrew, Hatarat Nidarim. The Bible permitting only the voiding of a vow in the case of an unmarried woman by her father and a married woman by her husband, right? So it's only the case of a male uh, doing hatarat nidarim, the cancellation of vows for a woman under his charge. There's, there's nothing about him negating his vow, right? Providing he did so in the day that he heareth. <laughs> I did not edit that to uh, modern English. Okay. So, and the day that he hears, nevertheless, the rabbis evolved an elaborate machinery for the absolution of vows. Although they frankly admitted that quote, the rules about the absolution of vows hover in the air and have nothing to support them. All right. So you got to love a bunch of people who make legislation and then say, this legislation has absolutely no legs, <laughs> right? You got to love that. You got to love the rabbis. So they, they admit there is no basis looking at Torah law for a man to absolve himself, to dissolve the vow that he makes. But the fact that, that they can do that for women means there is, in fact, a possibility of hataratna darim of of nullifying vows. All right, so let's look at tractate nedarim for a second to the relevant portion of it. I'm, I'm not covering all the stuff about vows. We'd be here for six months, right? Because there's a whole tractate of Talmud about it. I'm bringing you what I think is is interesting for us. 
right. So one who desires that his vows made during the year should be considered invalid must stand at the beginning of the year and say, every vow which I may make in the future, let it be annulled. This person's vows are then considered annulled. Okay, now it gets tangled. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Just if you're confused, it's okay. It's very confusing because it's written in code. It's written in shorthand. So you, if you look at this in a Talmud that helps us really try to understand this, there's a bunch of sentences between one clause and another for us to really understand what's not said here. But I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I'll do what I can for you. All right. Uh, only if this person remembers that, that they annulled it at the time of the vow. But if this person does remember hasn't this person uprooted it, the declaration, and reaffirmed the conditions of his new vow? Abaye answered, it is taught, as long as this person does not remember at the time of his vow, Rava says, it is just as we said at the beginning, the circumstances are that one makes this stipulation at the beginning of the year, but does not know yet in reference to what. Now, during the year, this person vows, if this person remembers the stipulation at the time of his vow and says, I make this vow in accordance with my original intention, then this vow bears no reality. But if this person does not make such a declaration, he or she has canceled his stipulation and confirmed his new vow. All right, so this is about canceling the cancellation. So if I say, I swear that I'm not going to, uh, that I'm going to exercise three times a week. I swear I'm going to do that for myself. I'm going to exercise three times a week. If at the beginning of the year I made a vow that said anything, anything I swear in this next year having to do with exercise is annulled because I know myself. I'm going to swear something and then I'm not going to keep it. So anything I swear in the coming year about exercise is automatically from the beginning annulled. If I swear I'm going to exercise three times a week later in the year, three months later, and I remember that I stipulated anything about exercise is annulled, my vow stands. Because obviously I'm annulling the annulment. If I remember that I annulled anything about exercise and make the vow anyway, I'm annulling the annulment. But if I remember I made a stipulation, any vows about blank won't hold. And I don't remember what it was about. Was it about exercise? Was it about, was it about calling my aunt more often? Was it about, shoot, what was the one that isn't going to stand if I make it? If I don't remember, then the vow does not stand. My original intention of annulling any vows about exercise stands if I don't remember exactly what my stipulation was. All right. So I don't, that's why I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It doesn't really matter for us. What matters is the jump, the jump from you can annul a woman's vows to, Oh, that means vows must be able to be annulled. How does one do that? And it, it, it comes up in the Talmud that the way one does that is what one stands. Ya'amod b'Rosh Hashanah, vayomer kol nidre shani atid lidor. So one stands at the beginning of the year and says, "All the vows that I'm going to make are hereby nullified." This is a this is a, a an explanation uh, uh, in something called Insights into the Daf. Daf is a page, meaning a page of Talmud. So this is insights into the Daf of Talmud we were just looking at. The Ran in the name of Rabbeinu Tam writes that this is indeed the source of, for the recitation of Kol Nidre. Accordingly, Kol Nidre should be recited in the future tense and not in the past tense, since it is a declaration of annulment of the coming year's Nidarim and not the past year's Nidarim. Right, so the language of Konidre should be miyom kipurim ze from this yom kippur ad yom kippurim haba to the yom kippur that's coming. That is the argument here. 
is that it should be in the future, not the past, right? Because the Talmud says, right, I'm going to say at the beginning of the year, everything I swear about exercise or whatever is null and void. Bert, can you mute Dana? Thank you. Um, the Rosh writes that the purpose of Kol Nidre is to annul Nidarim made during the previous year. He proves this from the fact that it is recited three times, just as a chacham, a wise person, declares mutarlach, it is permitted to you, three times when he annuls one's neder. So if you want to annul a vow, you have to go to a chacham, right? And the chacham will declare three times mutarlach, it is now permitted to you. That's for something you already made, a vow you already made. If that's already a legal standing, a legal, a legal statute that we have somewhere in the Mishnah, then, then it must mean that if you're standing at the beginning of the year, you're uprooting vows that you made in the past. He cites further proof from the fact that it is followed by the recitation of the verse, V'nislach l'chol adat b'nei Yisrael, may it be forgiven for the entire congregation of the people of Israel, which implies a pardon of the transgressions of the past. So if you're using the word right after kol nidre, if you're saying v'nislach l'chol adat b'nei Yisrael, may it be forgiven, forgiveness implies something you've already done, right? So that this is another proof they're using, this, this side of the argument is using, these people on this side are using to say, it's about the vows from the past. How can you be forgiven? for something you haven't done. So they must mean the vows of the past year. The Rosh questions, however, how Nidarim may be annulled in such a manner. The annulment of Nidarim requires a Beit Din of three men. Moreover, it requires a Psach. So I, I don't know that we really want to get into all this, um, but so, th so this is an argument that happens in the Talmud about is it the past or the future? that we're talking about when we say kol nidre. Is it the vows in the coming year or the vows in the past year that we are annulling? All right. <clears throat> then, of course, there's this whole thing of the weight of opinion, however, especially in the Talmud, is in favor of completely refraining from vows. It's like, you know what? Let's just not go there. <laughs> Let's just not get into this morass because it gets very complicated. Samuel Shmuel goes so far as to say, even when one fulfills his vow, he's called wicked. While Ravdimi calls him a sinner. So listen to that. That is strong language that in the Talmud, some of these rabbis are saying, even if you make a vow and you fulfill it, it's ra, it's wicked. And Ravdimi says, even a person who fulfills their vow is called a sinner. Okay. It is even said, that is a punishment for taking vows uh, one's children die young. Like, so this is like the, the scariest thing the rabbis can say. This is the scariest, scariest thing they can put out there is be careful because if you, right, if you start messing around with this stuff, the punishment is really something you're not going to be able to tolerate. It was as a result of this view, meaning that the, that the, the punishment is so dire for breaking one's word. Um, it was a result of this view that the elaborate procedure for the absolution of vows, which annulled them, um, ab initio, meaning from the beginning, was developed. The annulment depended on finding a door of regret. The establishment of circumstances which the person taking the vow had not taken into consideration or known about at the time when he took the vow. Had he done so, he would not have taken the vow. The annulment had to take place before a properly constituted bait dean of three. And the formula of absolution is it is absolved to thee. It is absolved to thee. This is, therefore, a discussion about how we get from our Parsha to Kol Nidre. This is why and how we have people standing on the bima. We have Sifrei Torah on the bima to stand as a Beit Din, to stand as a legal court, a legal tribunal. The people recite kol nidre, all the vows that I've made, that I make in the coming year, may they be absolved. 
I mean, may they be dissolved. And so I'm absolved of guilt. And that becomes a legal dissolving of the vows that somebody was going to make in the coming year so that nobody bears the guilt of unfulfilled promises uh, in the coming year. So what happened with Kol Nidre is that some people turned to Kol Nidre and said, if Jews are going to annul all of their vows for the year to come, why would we do business with them? Why would we draw up a contract with them? Why would we do anything with them? Because we can't trust their word. They stand up at the beginning of the year and annul all their vows. So what they're saying is we can swear whatever we want in business or do a handshake deal or say, I promise to repay you by Thursday. And none of it means anything because they've annulled all their vows. These are just promises to God and not man. No, it's also to man. It absolutely is not about God. Absolutely not. You can annul your vows to, I owe you $20 and I can. Or myself. I I swear that I am not, that I'm going to exercise three times a week. But what if I owe you $100 and I say, I'm not going to pay it. That's, I've annulled that. Like, why would anybody do this? But it became a tangled, it became a very problematic thing. And it was actually used against the Jews. It was used so that people said, we're not going to do business with them because they've annulled all of their vows. And so we can't trust anything that they're going to promise. And so forget about it. Um, And therefore, the language of Kol Nidre was changed. It was changed to be Miyom Kippurim She'avar Miyom Kippur Kippur Hazeh. The liturgy was changed to say, I annul all the vows that I made from last Yom Kippur to this Yom Kippur that I did not fulfill. Right? The ones you fulfilled are no problem. Right? But the liturgy got changed because of the... um, the response, right, to the fact that Jews were now annulling their vows at the beginning of the year. So now you have to look at different synagogues. Some synagogues say, Mi Yom Kippurim Zeh Ad Yom Kippurim Haba. And some say, Mi Yom Kippur, right? Shalvar Le Yom Kippur Hazeh. So um, you have to think about what, what do you think about that? Like, what do you think about, should we be able to annul all our vows on Kol Nidre for the year to come? Or is it just about asking forgiveness, essentially, for the things that we did not fulfill in the past year, which is, which is more meaningful? Protect me from myself, right? So that I don't, that I'm not held responsible for stuff I'm going to promise that is way beyond my capacity to fulfill or desire to fulfill, actually? Or is it about cleaning up the year that's passed and, and, uh, and looking at, looking at pardoning us for that. Okay. Wait, Pam, did you say you remembered what yeah, you forgot? Yeah, I remember. Okay. That, that, with, that it's discouraged because we have 613 mitzvot. We have so many restrictions on ourselves already that the rabbis are asking, really, do you need to make another, a further restriction? That I think vows are discouraged is my view of the rabbis. I don't think they really like the making of more vows. What, what do you think? Um, I think the rabbis are nervous about human beings thinking they can do more than they can do. I think they don't have a real problem with restrictions. I mean, I get what you're saying that like we already have a lot going on with what we can eat and what we can't eat. And, you know, when you say this bracha, when you say that bracha, like I get that, but they don't seem to have a problem piling it on. <laughs> you know, like I think, I think they're, I think they're wary of human nature that, and, and, and I use the exercise example because one of you, and you know who you are challenged me this week on, am I exercising one hour every day? And I said, heck to the no. Um, and the question is, why not? 
we know it's good for us, especially during COVID, especially during all this like quarantine, we're all going nuts. Of course, the endorphins and all that good stuff, the brain chemistry that would happen if I would exercise an hour a day would be amazing, right? But guess what? We human beings don't have great capacity and the rabbis understood this to do what's best for us. So even if we make a vow that says, okay, I'm going to swear before God and everybody that I'm going to exercise an hour a day, I think the rabbis got it that that may be what we want. That may be the us that we long for and are even planning for, but they know that we are just not great at living up to our our expectations of ourselves and that they, they don't want us to constantly be carrying around the guilt of having broken vows that were needless to say in the first place. Right. So I think that's their, that's some of their nervousness and anxiety about, about vows in general. Okay. I, I wanted to say um, something about vows and uh, while you were explaining that I was just thinking what about my own conscience and ethics? I will just go by that. If it's about a promise or a vow that I made, uh, for example, as, as you know, if I borrow from someone, if I made a promise to someone, I will just, just question, I will go by my own ethics. Um, I know, I mean, these ancient books are great for, they, they've been great for, uh, for us for thousands of years, but nowadays I will just say, I mean, what, there's universal ethics in certain things. So what you're saying is your fulfilling of a promise wouldn't be about being afraid to be punished by God. It would be about, you know, it's wrong to promise something and not fulfill it. Yes. Right. So of course we, we always do that now. Like we, most of us in this, in this chat room do not, do not do things because we're going to break halacha. We're going to somehow break Jewish law. That is not why we do or refrain from doing things. Yes, it's because we have a moral code. What we look to these texts for, I believe, is is a conversation about what are our morals and ethics around swearing and vowing and promising, right? Like I remember once I became a parent, all of a sudden I didn't promise things anymore because what I promised myself and my daughter – from the moment she was born was I will never lie to you and anything that I promise you, I will fulfill unless I am entirely unable to do so because of circumstances outside of my control. And that has stood to this day, which means I don't promise a lot. Right? Uh, Like I get it. The rabbis are right. Like what I'm about to promise her, it's like, uh, do you really want to do that? Right. And in general, it's like, no, I'll say I'm going to try really hard to make sure we have time to do that this weekend. But I could get a call that somebody's dying and I have to go to the hospital and there goes our plan for whatever it was. I, I, I can't. There's a lot I can't promise. Right. And in the traditional Jewish world, anything you say is prefaced with bleeneder, without promise. So if someone says, are you going to be at that meeting on Thursday afternoon, Rabbi Bernstein? I say, yes, Bleeneder. Because I don't know if I'm going to be there next Thursday afternoon. What if I get hit by a truck on my way to the meeting? I promised I'm going to be there, and now I can't be there, not because of any fault of mine, but because I got hit by a truck. So, But I've broken my promise on top of being hit by a truck. <laughs> so, um, so everything in the traditional Jewish world, I grew up hearing Blineder, like without promise. The other thing, the, the flip side of that, that you hear a lot that I bet you didn't know comes from here is Be'ezrat Hashem with God's help, right? Be'ezrat Hashem with God's help, I'll be there next Thursday. What that means is I can't promise with God's help, it's my, it's my intention to be there next Thursday, but it depends on God whether or not I'm going to actually get there, not on me. So they'll say, with God's help, Ezra Tashem, or Emir Hashem, if God, God willing. You hear God willing all the time, God right? Willing. Yeah. There's God a very. Willing, I'll be there next Thursday. That's, that's code for I can't promise because it's not in my hands. Uh, something terrible. Well, happened. some people do it. 
What? A lot of people use it as an excuse not to, you know, uh, uh, stand up to their promises. So who, who, in your experience, uses it that way? I would say the more conservative, I mean, conservative. I mean, I, 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 right now I'm in an Islamic society and I hear inshallah all the time, which means they're, they're not going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Mehmet is saying inshallah, which is the same as emir to Hashem, like if, if God wills it, right? Inshallah. When you hear that, they're not they're never going to show up. <laughs> so very interesting that, that something that starts for us as I can't promise because it's not in my hands, but I have every intention of being there, becomes in right in another situation an excuse saying, Oh, of I promise of course I'll be there next Thursday, inshallah. Meaning not gonna happen. I need, you know, I may decide to wash my hair because that's what God wants of me that Thursday, right? So very interesting that, that morphing, right, of, of things to go the other, the other way, which, is, which was the anti-Semitic claim. We can't do business with Jews because they're saying that their vows don't stand. Right, need, somebody was trying to say something. Yeah, Mehmet, Mehmet uh, I, I, I spent a lot of, I, I just want to take a little bit of exception to what you, you said about inshallah. I spent a lot of time in Arab countries and doing business there. And it it is to some extent a figure of speech and to some extent an expression of humility. Uh, and also sometimes forget it, I won't necessarily be there. But it, uh, it it is this sense that I don't control everything. And I think that this whole thing about vows and promises, if there's no way to clean the slate then our lives just become a massive, massive accumulation of unfulfilled promises and unfulfilled vows. And I think that most, you know, back in the temple days, one had at least some mechanism for cleansing them with sacrifices. And I think that most uh, religions have some way of cleansing, whether it be confession or whatever. So I'm not saying it's the same as that, but I think that part of what Judaism is looking for is how do we deal with the fact that people are not perfect? And do we just keep on carrying all these burdens around forever until we are totally crushed? Or is there some mechanism? And if so, what mechanism to be able to get some cleansing, which is how I look at Kol Nidre. So, but the interesting thing about that, Bert, is notice it's not about lying. It's not about gossip. You, the same dross that you're talking about could be because I'm constantly negative. I'm constantly trashing people. I'm constantly taking what doesn't belong to me. That's not what's annulled. So it's interesting. Yes, of course, this is in the category of how do we not schlep our Samsonite luggage of guilt around with us for the next year, 100%. But it's interesting that it's about promises. It's That's not about promises to God, isn't it? A ton of other stuff that we do all the time that we have this legal formula to cleanse us of. Now, is it about promises to God? Well, it, it doesn't matter. My, my point is, it's interesting that this is the thing that we picked as a people to focus on, on Kol Nidre, right? It's not, please annul all the gossip that I'm going to talk about other people in the coming year. We're far more likely to do that than swear something and that, like, I think what it's saying is that this, this is an indication of how critically existentially important one's word is to the rabbis, to our tradition. That when you say, I promise, it is a big flipping deal in our tradition. And that commitments, when you make a commitment, you build the structure, the fabric, if you will, of reality for somebody. When you say, I promise to bring this to your house on Thursday morning, somebody's already constructed Thursday morning to include that soup that you were going to bring. So they didn't buy groceries that day. They didn't eat breakfast. They, right, they, they build certain, they do and build certain things based on the reality that your word created for them. Then if you go back on your word, if you break your word, you puncture and tear 
someone else's reality. That is serious, say the rabbis. You don't get to do that. You don't get to construct something for people and then tear it like that. You, that is too devastating to people's ability to know what they can expect from other people. And in some ways for the rabbis, I think it's foundational to a healthy community is that I can trust you at your word. When you tell me, you promise, you swear, or you swear to God even, I swear to God. If I'm going to take something that seriously that I swear to God, then what does it mean that I don't even take my own promises to myself seriously with God as my witness? Then, then that's, that's an unhealthy relationship to oneself also and the reality that one is creating for oneself. And I think it's remarkable that our tradition takes it that seriously and has like for so incredibly long. All right. I want to close with a different text, a different point. Um, okay. So this is from your green book, the women's Torah commentary. On the one hand, we live in a time when as women, we are blessedly free from the kind of, not king, we are blessedly free from the kind of controls that numbers prescribes. On the other hand, we find ourselves within a web of relationships where we often give up what we had promised to ourselves or we redirect our abilities. The stereotype of the Jewish mother may represent in some ways a woman's efforts to take power through the very vehicles that entrap her by making a nice home, cooking gourmet meals, and having successful children. Some may see these concessions as choices. Others may see them as abandonment of self. We want to fulfill our responsibilities and live up to our expectations as spouses, mothers, and daughters, but we also want to be heard to play an active role in our communities, to see ourselves and to be seen as powerful. We are aware that our culture could not survive if we sometimes did not voluntarily place our own needs as secondary. Yet, we are not always aware of the price some of us pay for that choice. So what she's getting at uh, here uh, is she's, she's suggesting that yes, now there's no controls over women, and what we can fulfill or not fulfill. And yet, women are still different from men in that they are bound by a web of relationships and expectations that often have women um, not do for themselves what they kind of would like to or would promise themselves they would do because of all of these other expectations around them. Um, and that they are unable to fulfill uh, what what they would for themselves if they were free of those constraints. And not that any of us wish to be free of the responsibilities and constraints mm -hmm. of family and community and relationship, but that women are still held to a different, I think her point is women are still asked to self abdicate on behalf of those relationships in a way that men are not. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.